Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this podcast, Recover Out Loud. And today on Recover Out Loud, we are going to be doing our flagship series, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. So if at any time you feel inspired by this, please share it with a friend. Also leave a review. Your reviews really matter as far as us reaching more alcoholic women and their families and sharing experience, strength, and hope. So if you do feel inspired by this, please do those two things. You will be helping possibly save a life. So anyways, today we have on Lizzie, who I don't know too well, but I know of her and I hear wonderful things about her. And it sounds like we have some things in common just from about the five second conversation that I had with her. I've heard her sharing in meetings and she shares good stuff. So I assume that what we'll talk about today is going to be fantastic. So Lizzie, if you don't mind, just introduce yourself. You can let us know what your sobriety date is if you want to, and then just give us some background information about yourself and what led you to get sober. Okay. Um, so my name is Lizzie. I am a recovered uh, alcoholic. My sobriety date is May 23rd, 2017. So I've been sober almost five years. A little background on me and what my destruction looked like. It started... I mean, I think the first time I drank alcohol, I was probably, you know, like 13. I was at like a function with my mom and I was, you know, just like sneaking the drinks. And a lot of that was due to, you know, I did have issues whenever I was a child with not feeling okay. So a lot of it was I did have issues at home with my stepdad at the time. So it was just, you know, I started to, before alcohol really became a problem, my bigger issues were self-harm, suicide attempts, stuff like that when I was in middle school. So something in me just was always like not well, basically. And then in high school, middle school actually, is when I started with alcohol and substances. Things definitely escalated in high school. Things escalated at home as well. I was just a terror to basically everyone. So I decided to work two jobs and abuse substances and then graduate high school a year early and move out. And it was one of the worst decisions I ever made. Um, and there, things continued to escalate for a period of time. Why was it one of the worst decisions you ever made? Because I thought I knew what I was doing, and I absolutely did not. <laughs> Same. Yeah. It was like I thought I, you know, was growing up. I knew everything, and, you know, I was 17 years old. And looking back, I was I'm like, just, geez. That's uh, so crazy because I graduated high school early and also moved out at 17. Yeah, and it was one of those, like, in a way, it was like, because my mom wouldn't let me do the things that I wanted to do how I wanted to do them. Also, too, it was just, you know, I was, my mindset and my behaviors were, I was very argumentative. I was very, like, I was sneaking out all the time, you know, so, but, like, of course, I placed blame on the reason why I had to do all of those things was how dare my mom try to tell me what to do. So I thought I knew better. And, like, looking back, like, that not only did that cause problems with my substance use, but also, too, like, the direction I went in life. So I'm in this apartment at 17 in Sherman where... How did you get a lease at 17? So my dad. Oh, okay. My dad ended up telling me a little bit later in life that what... Because my parents got divorced when I was six, I think, roughly around that age. So what my dad told me a little bit later in life is basically what he learned about me was, if you push too hard, I'm going to go even further the other direction. My dad knew that my mom kind of already had that covered. Mm -hmm. And so my dad basically tried to stay involved in my life. So that way, even though it was things he didn't necessarily agree on, um, because he knew if he didn't, uh, he wouldn't hear from me. So he kind of, and it's a lot more complicated than that. But ultimately it was, he put the lease in my name because I think he knew that if he didn't, uh, the direction I was going to go was going to be something that was out of his, much further out of his reach than that. And he wanted to stay involved in, in some way. My dad later in the story ended up becoming my biggest enabler due to the fact that there's no alcoholism or substance abuse issues or anything like that anywhere in my family. 
Really? You're the first? Yeah. Wow. I'm the first with tattoos. I'm the first with a criminal record. I'm the first with having a kid before marriage. I'm the first, like... The rebel. Yeah, 100%. I'm the rebel of my family. I don't even think my parents have ever gotten speeding tickets. Wow. Yeah. So they did not know what to do with me. Yeah. Yeah. So which ultimately that that made it much more beneficial for me to be able to manipulate, place blame on, you know, everything being, especially later, uh, everything was an issue with just strictly mental health. Oh, it's I have to do this because of my anxiety. I have to do this because of my, you know, social anxiety stuff, which like wasn't completely false. But like ultimately what my problem was, like wasn't centered around those things. Right. No, I did the same thing. I played up mental health so much i i talk about like i think only an alcoholic is an ex- is excited whenever they get a new mental health diagnosis you know because it's like see this is why i do it because of of these things right it gives me an excuse to keep doing it yeah also too it gave me a new another some type of medication or something for me to think i was gonna you know be able to get some benefits from right especially to drinking with them yes yeah which wasn't false but you yeah. know yeah um so I did that a lot I you know manipulated doctors for a while which like it talks about in the book like you know did all that stuff but things escalated quickly like later in life especially with I started catching criminal charges how old were you around this point first time I got arrested I want to say I was 19 so back up a little bit I got shortly a couple not too long after moving out I got pregnant with my son at 18 um he was born shortly before I turned 19 me and his dad split when he was about three months old it was one of those relationships that only lasted as long as it did because I was pregnant for nine months of it Mm -hmm. and then the difference was is him and I met because we did substances with the same people we drank with the same people played loco pong every weekend with the same people uh the difference was is loco pong is beer pong right but with locos four locos nice okay yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah so the difference was is he was able to stop and mine got worse started catching charges Uh, my first charge was felony burglary you know it was a whore it's one of those stories that like it's very embarrassing to tell people because of the thoughts and decisions that I made ultimately around being intoxicated as to why I thought I could get away with it and all that good stuff but it's going to be helpful to people yeah no for sure but the details of the story everyone finds very funny are you going to tell him I can't. Uh, <laughs> well, you you have to now. You said it was funny. Well, so especially so the first felony I caught was due to attempting to. Well, so no, wait. Yeah, no, this was when I was about this age. So I, I attempted to burglarize a Sonic um, <laughs> in the middle of the night. And due to the high levels of intoxication, I thought that I was for some reason going to be able to accomplish doing this with tools out of my kitchen from my kitchen drawer. So like steak knives, spatulas, you know, like all of these types of things. I thought I was going to be able to break into their like giant cement doors that they have out back. And they were they were closed. They weren't open, which is why it was burglary, not robbery, even though like due to the to the not good preparation and all of this. I ended up like leaving because I couldn't get in. But I about that time was when kitchen staff was showing up. Uh, saw that someone had attempted to do something to it um, and so I and it was in a real small town and so I got caught like walking around after and they found my Betsy Johnson bag full of my equipment uh, <laughs> that I had tried to use so in so in the state of Texas apparently there is not an attempted burglary charge so I got hit with straight up burglary um, wow. yeah it was you know not my not my best moment but along the way, I did catch a few other charges. That, and ultimately, I look at it as I'm like, it was just karma for all of the things that I did do that didn't get caught for. And so the drinking and the and the substances, you know, got worse, especially too with the, it was almost like the more worse decisions I made and the more shame and guilt I felt around those decisions, the more it fueled for me to continue to just try to like not feel those things by um, numbing with more alcohol mm-hmm. and substances things definitely escalated to a point of where a couple of years later in life you know it was like I was I was past the point of not being able to keep a job because either couldn't wake up in the mornings to be there on time or just couldn't regulate emotions or you know anything like that mm-hmm. so I was past that point to where what my disease told me was that my son and my parents and family and everyone else was better off if I was just gone 
And throughout all of this, there were, you know, suicide attempts, self-harm, all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. It's so crazy. Like, I am hearing you talk, and so much of what you're saying is, like, my story. Yeah, it was, and two, it was, you know, looking back at, like, how much, you know, self-pity there was, but also, like, just the insane amount of delusion Mm -hmm. around, like, my options. And two, at the time, like, I... I wasn't around anyone that used the terms like detox treatment, anything like that in their Same. language. Yeah. So to me, that wasn't like ever really introduced. I didn't know that there was a solution. I didn't know that there was honestly other people who went through that same cycle over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, that I would emerge remorseful. And I, you know, honestly, at that time, what our plans always were for me was to check into more like behavioral places. Uh, since like I, I did for a while think that my issues were, strictly mental health problems Um, i remember you said in a meeting one time that you did a lot of psych wards Mm -hmm. i did too Mm -hmm. like i didn't know that there was like treatment centers and everything that you just said in but i remember like that's my girl because i was in and out of psych wards all the time yeah i've been to a handful of those yeah um handful of and, and a couple of them were not my decision it was judge rules of me to have basically because I was a danger to myself. I got put in a couple of them. Um, but as far as like substance abuse treatment centers, I've only been to one. Yeah. But quite a quite a few of the other types of institutions. Yeah. But so, you know, I didn't like, you know, and every time it was, we would make the plans to go to these behavioral places or wherever it was that I was going to go. And then something would shift and I'd be like, nope. And I'd take off. Um, and I did that a couple of times. Um, the most recent time that I made that decision, phone was shut off, emails were shut off. Uh, no one had any contact with me it was probably about a total of like eight months I think I resurfaced in there once or twice and that's because I had and where was your son during all this uh so during this time he was with his dad okay because basically when I made that choice of like that everyone would be better off if I was Mm -hmm. just gone you know because I looked at it as like I can't be the mom that he needs me to be I can't keep up with responsibilities so like what that delusional mindset looked like was instead of basically just getting my act together uh, and like, you know, stuff like that, it was more, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take off. Cause at that time I was not willing to give up, uh, any of the things that changed the way I felt. Right. And so one time, basically I decided to just not go pick him back up from his dad one weekend. And I took off from everyone that knew me, family, everything. Nobody knew where I went. How and old was he? At that time he was, he was probably about four or five. All that happened. I resurfaced a couple times because I got arrested. Uh, and I would do the same thing again. My dad would get me out of jail. So I was talking about my dad being my enabler later on is because every time I'd get arrested, I never spent a lot of time in jail because he'd get me out. My family did not have a lot of education around what alcoholism and addiction looked like, uh, any of that kind of stuff. So they didn't quite understand that what they were doing like wasn't truly helping mm-hmm. um, because it was one of those that it was like, why would I need? Ultimately, it was like, why would I need to get my act together if I have someone who's going to continue to save me every time I get in a bind? Right. So that happened. And then finally, one of the most recent times that I landed myself in Dallas County, my dad had finally talked to someone and they were like, stop getting her out like stop saving her like stop like was it somebody from like Al-Anon or something so it was someone that had had the same experience with their daughter okay who um struggled with alcoholism and addiction who basically the family that family had been to Al-Anon the daughter had been to treatment and so that's kind of where they had gotten educated around it my dad ultimately like grounded me to Dallas County uh is ultimately what happened he finally uh, said, the only way I'm getting you out of jail is if you agree to go to treatment. And at that time, I was willing to agree to anything to get out of Dallas County. Right. Uh, it was not It was not a fun place. So I agreed to go to treatment. And I remember sitting in like their like detox observation area. Um, even though I'd been in jail for a few weeks, they still had to observe me. Um, and I remember I was still given like the book and the step packets and all of that. And I started reading in the book. And I remember like... As soon as I started reading in the doctor's opinion, when it started about that cycle, mm-hmm. uh, I was like blown away at like being able to see in my experience, like how that continued to happen over and over. And like, basically it was able to put things into words that I was never able to. Mm-hmm. I'm going to was... um, pause for a minute because I want to get the book over here because when you're talking and I, I do this a lot where I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this part in the book. Lizzie, do you mind reading that cycle that you're talking about in Doctor's Opinion? Sure. On page XXVIII, it says, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. 
The sensation is so elusive that, while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So when you read that, that's the first time that you were like, this is what's happening to me. Absolutely that, and to like, a little bit above it when it talks about um, the manifestation of an allergy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I don't, cause like too, then I was able to look back at my experience of, you know, cause for a long time I worked in the service industry. So a lot of that consisted of like when people got off work, go across the street, go drink at the bar. And it was, I was always the one that like went way too hard. Uh, I was the one that a lot of the times in the mornings would always have to ask what I did the night before and always feel embarrassment and shame usually uh because i caused a scene for some reason i liked to try to pick fights with men i don't know why oh my god me too yeah i and and i always used to be like it's because i don't like how women fight (laughs) i'm like i don't even know what that means (laughs) um but so i would i would pick fight with pick fights with men and so i always say that like i feel real bad for the guys who dated me through that like real intensive phase is you know because i'm sure that was not not super fun for them probably Um, not yeah so it was either that or I was the one that like okay two o'clock bars are closing people are going home and I'm like okay but who's got the alcohol at their house right like I like I mine was like a constant like I was always continuing you know when everyone else was like done and I'm like I don't I don't understand Mm -hmm. like that concept yeah Mm -hmm. always looking for the after party Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that was me too yeah sure and I'm sure a lot of people listening are going to relate to that as well right yeah so you're in treatment for the first time. Tell me about like what what did it did you have you didn't have your son at this point, right? No. And how many f- charges did you have? So at that time I had four felonies and two misdemeanors. Wow. Yeah. Uh and let me tell you the charges did not get less. They got worse as time went on. But also too, so like back a little bit ago when I was talking about um that I just like took off. Uh, due to that, um, there was a court order put in place. It was basically a, a protective order. Because anytime I knew I was going to get like drug tested or something like that in custody court, I just wouldn't show up. Because I'm right. like, I would rather not be there than it be in black and white that I failed. Right. So due to like my inconsistencies and all of that, um, I was not allowed. At that time, it had been, it had been almost a year um, that I, in no form or fashion, was allowed to communicate with Landon. So... Phone calls, uh, letters, anything like that. My parents had grandparents' rights, so they were able to see him regularly, go to his you know, baseball games, all that kind of stuff. Um, but even it put them in a difficult spot because they were real nervous about what can we say to him, like about me. Mm-hmm. They're like, what can we not say? Because they didn't want to you know, ultimately jeopardize their ability to continue to see him. Wow. So that must have been really hard, huh? It was. It was, it was difficult because I didn't get any visitation or communication rights back until I had been sober for it's probably about a year and a half wow so it was for about a total of about two and a half years that there was no communication allowed it's from when he was five to when he was eight yeah that's really hard it was and it was one of those that you know I hear a lot of people talk about you know just like the the guilt around because it's it's I see it all the time it's super common for women you know when they get sober that there's damages with their kids or families or Mm -hmm. anything like that and so basically what I decided as best as I could to do was you know basically continue to do the work I knew I needed to do and do what I needed to do in front of me to make sure that basically I never have to put him through this again yeah so the focus wasn't so much on like the self-pity and the remorse because like I could spend all day looking at that if I wanted to Um, But it was more like I wanted to put in the work to make sure that, you know, this was the only time it was going to happen. That's awesome. So did you want to be sober when you went to treatment? So ultimately, like in hindsight, the way I see it is a power greater than me definitely did for me what I cannot do for myself. At the time that I landed in jail and then treatment, I don't, I, I think at the point that I was at, I would not have walked away from that willingly. But since you know, Carrollton and Addison City Police Department put me in jail. Uh, I was able to be there long enough 
for you know the alcohol and the substances and everything to kind of clear out to where I could like really take a look and be like basically what I decided is I was like I don't want to be one of those women who knows how to do time Mm. Um, like looking around Dallas County and it's just these women that they're just used to it you know it's just part of part of their life and I knew that that was the direction I was heading so at that time like when I got to treatment it wasn't necessarily because two I didn't really even know what that meant Um, I didn't necessarily know how to get there. I didn't really know what it looked like. Uh, At that point, I just knew that like I wasn't willing to live life like I had been. And I was in a position to be doing something different. That's awesome. So you had the willingness to do something different from the beginning of that stay. Yeah, I was the definition of beaten into a state of reasonableness. Wow. Yeah, uh, Kelsey, the one that you just saw, she's a court card kid. And she likes to say that uh, her higher power worked through the judicial system or something could to get her to a place where she would stop you know for a long time I thought that it was like it blew it blew my mind anytime there would be people that'd be like you've never been arrested you know it's like I thought that was just like (laughs) a thing that everyone does yeah for a while I had a hard time wrapping my mind around the concept that there are fully law-abiding citizens well or people who don't get caught I mean there's that too but (laughs) it it just like I thought that that was just like the norm you know so Mm -hmm. it's like the the whole court system it's not like by the consequences was that in any form or fashion a motivator Um, but it was just due to them intervening at times it put me in a position to where you know I didn't have the ability to leave it wasn't as easy for me to make the same decisions I had been Uh, it gave me some time to really like look back and be like man this is not what I wanted to be when I grew up right um nobody wants to be that when they grow up yeah I was like man I wanted I've always said that like I'm real good at arguing so I wanted to be a lawyer for a long time um so it's just like you know the the plans and the intentions that I had for myself when I was a little girl I had and I had become quite quite the opposite and so just basically they gave me the opportunity to sit somewhere long enough to reevaluate and look at hindsight of because I had fallen in, in love with the lifestyle that comes with a lot of that, just mm. as much as, you know. I hear that, that people do that. Yeah, I had to basically, for the, probably the first six months of sobriety, kind of mourn that, really? I guess you could say. Yeah, it's like, wow. it's, it's just more like coming to terms. It's just like coming to terms with the fact that you're an alcoholic. It's like coming to terms with, you know, having to say goodbye. It is like a kind of like a grief thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Yeah. I could see that. So this was your first time being presented like the solution and the steps in the big book, correct? Mm-hmm. And how cool. You're the second person that I've interviewed who like threw themselves completely in the first time this solution was presented to them. That's usually not the case, but that's really awesome because it shows that like well, relapse is a part of your story. It doesn't have to be kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of people, my mom's told me that uh, some people she talks to that know people or have kids or whatever that have struggled with the same thing uh, have almost basically told my mom, like, yeah, this one's not going to stick. Like, everyone relapses at least once. Right. And in the beginning, that was pretty defeating for her. Right. But the reason why people relapse is because they don't do the program. It's not because the program doesn't work. The difference between you and all everybody else is you threw yourself completely in from the jump. And you haven't stopped, right? Right. And I think that, too, honestly, like, if that the solution had present, been presented to me much earlier in life, uh, my experience wouldn't wouldn't be the same as yeah. me being willing to basically do whatever, you know, whatever was told. And a lot of that did come from the fact that um, I did go to a facility that was 12-step. Basically, everybody that worked there was a recovered alcoholic, drug addict, something like that. And so... You know, ultimately that helps by seeing that like there was people there that the solution worked for, that they had done it. Obviously that gave me some sense of hope, but like I said, I was beyond beaten to a state of reasonableness to where I I had worked really hard to make myself really miserable. Yeah. Uh, and I was just tired of being miserable. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said that if the solution would have been presented to you before, you probably wouldn't have ended up like this because it sounds like by the time it was presented to you this time and my story is kind of similar I have a lot of experience with trying to get sober in the rooms like in all kinds of 12-step fellowships but by the time the solution was really presented to me like I had step one and I think sometimes people come in before they have step one it sounds like you had step one yeah and two I didn't have any like reservations about like my experience clearly showed me that like I had a problem with you know, needing to change the way I felt that I was powerless over, you know, drugs and alcohol in my life was beyond unmanageable. And and two, it's like, I think I also too kind of had the benefit of the fact that I 
also too didn't go into it try with a basically a resentment towards a higher power or god because mm-hmm. I, I see that a lot of you know that getting in the way of people's yeah. experience so what did you do when you left um when did you have you always been around dallas no okay when i was in treatment when i first got there they started talking about this thing called sober living and my first so where i went to treatment it was only a 30-day facility so but they presented this thing to me called sober living and the first like two weeks i was there i was like why would anyone agree to going anywhere like this afterwards you know i was like why like why why would you want to do that that sounds terrible and then it was like through doing the work and like becoming aware of my tendencies and and it it wasn't like I did it wasn't things I didn't already know it was more just having to like things about myself that I had to like look right at Mm. and I was like I'm a creature of habit Uh, I do what's comfortable I do what's familiar you know like and I knew myself and so I was like all right probably need to do this sober living thing that must have been like a god inspired thought right it was because it was not something that like someone like me previously would have been willing to do because that was asking me to get really uncomfortable um especially too since the sober living was in austin and i'm from north dallas and so the options were austin or kerrville and i was like yeah i'm not going to kerrville so I went down to Austin and two, it was, it was a big thing too, for my parents to be in a position to agree after all of this happened, my, my history of taking off and going MIA for a while for them to be willing to let me move to a city that's four hours away. But they also saw the merit in giving myself an opportunity to start over somewhere that wasn't where I just spent a lot of time, you know, ruining my life and the people and, and all of that. And it's, and it's not that I don't think people can't, you know, stay sober in the same place that they just did all that in Uh, I just had the opportunity to kind of practice laying a recovery foundation Mm -hmm. um, before I had to come back and face it all Mm -hmm. so I went to sober living down there and I went to to sober living that is very structured which you know at the time was difficult but I see the importance of that now Uh, it's it's always you know like they say hindsight's 2020 but it, it was borderline like boot camp kind of style very intensive so I lived there about six months and that's so at about seven months sober is when I started working in treatment really that early huh Mm -hmm. wow which was so I started I was a house manager for like I I was in their normal housing for a little while and then I got moved over to the graduate apartments and then basically came back to manage the house I was just living in Mm -hmm. and I started working in their women's inpatient center oh wow so it was I went from at about seven months sober to being a house manager and working at an inpatient facility. So it was a lot to take on. That is a lot to take on, especially yeah. in your first year. Yeah. How quickly did you get through the steps? So I got through all 12 when I was in treatment. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it was, a, they, they, that's generally what they aim for there is. So I got through all 12 ultimately, I think in about 28 days. Oh, we love that here at Maggie's. Yeah. I knocked that four step out because too, it was like when I was in treatment and everyone was talking about you know like I over the years I've been sober I've I'm real big on being like everything's about what you choose to your perception on it Mm -hmm. how you want to perceive the situation how you want to look at it um and I remember hearing about that four step and the fifth step and whatever in treatment and everyone was like oh my gosh it's so hard it's so whatever it's not well it's really not and like and two you know for someone like me like I was pretty aware of the harm that I had caused due to my resentments and my fears or whatever the more difficult part for me was coming to terms with finding it objectionable mm, i remember you shared that in a meeting one time yeah how did you end up finding all of that objectionable because uh, like you're not a psychopath right like so it ended up becoming objectionable but how did that happen so and a lot of it ultimately was because those like character defects and all of that you know just basically like looking at like what my tendencies are um the biggest thing for me too in the fourth step in that third extended third column was really taking a look at these deep-rooted belief systems that I have and like basically what I think I want and need from people in order for me to be okay and how Mm -hmm. like ultimately delusional that is and how much power I give other people but so for me to find those things objectionable basically what it caused is for me to get out of treatment and then cause a lot of harm is that what you did yes oh wow And, and and it wasn't like I did it intentionally right of course we don't I don't think we ever do it intentionally but it, it's the same like because it's the same 
parts about me that they still served me, right? right. So like the manipulation, the attention seeking, the, you know, all of those types of things. Because some of them, of course, I did initially find objectionable. Mm-hmm. But some of the other ones, it was more difficult for the ones that still served me and benefited me. So especially two ones that revolved around my sex conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got out of treatment and that's ultimately the areas that I caused harm in. You know, because at that time I couldn't, I couldn't validate myself yet. Right. Um, or so, get validation from God. Yeah. I, it was, you know, and so what ended up happening was, and two, it wasn't even just causing harm, but kind of continuing to cause like disruption, mm-hmm. you know, or something. It's just basically causing some type of negative outcome. Uh, and Being a producer of confusion rather than harmony. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of what it took was, because at, at that time I was in a position to really be awake and aware to see the negative outcomes of my behaviors and also to just how I thought. So that's kind of how I started finding them objectionable is like realizing that kind of stuff. And also too, like realizing that, you know, through all of this, I'm trying to live life differently. So it it's like these, these things about myself and these things about how I choose to live life, like don't serve the type of life that I'm trying to live now. Mm-hmm. You know, like those like survival skills that were kind of yeah savagery that I had developed, like they don't benefit me in the life I'm trying to live now. I remember I had an experience too, kind of similar to that, which involved my sex conduct early on in sobriety. Like I was through the steps and all that, but I remember I was causing disruption, right? And I um, was like outside yelling at this guy that I was like kind of seeing, like, I'm just doing what I have to do to survive. And I was like, oh my God, like that's the kind of shit I would say back then. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to live this way. That's disgusting to me now. But like, it was like, saying that and then realizing like the words that I had just said Mm -hmm. you know yeah mine too it was a big thing was it was like I would go through this whole deal with like okay so I need your attention and your validation but once I have it I don't want it anymore but then when I don't have and so I'm going to push you away but then when I don't have it anymore I need it again yeah and so I'm going to go through this whole back and forth thing of you know I, I need it I don't want it but I need it but I don't want it you know and so it was like ultimately like guys you know there was a couple specifically that you know basically were like I can't keep doing this and I remember like like a few months later I was trying to make amends for it yeah and like they weren't open to the amends and like the way my brain thought is I was like how dare you not allow me to have the experience of making (laughs) these amends to you you know like just that like like selfish thinking Uh of like you I, you need to let me make these amends to you so that you know like not thinking that it's like you just cause so much harm this person doesn't want to see you or talk to you you right. know and they have the right to do that to this day I've still not but they've not let me make them really yeah oh, that's okay yeah it's fine I know my ex-husband has never allowed me to make the amends and I've made multiple approaches throughout the years and finally it was just if you're ever willing I'm ready kind of thing and God will align if it's supposed to happen yeah, I mean, I've tried, and it's, I mean, it's the willingness. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, did you make an amends to your son? I did. Um, Can so you talk about that? Once I got, so like I said, it was about a year and a half into my sobriety that I got visitation rights back, and, you know, and, and through some of that was, you know, since we were having to go through the court, um, I did have some other criminal charges pending that we were trying to figure out what the result of those was going to be. Because, you know, ultimately, if they were going to ask for jail time, then, you know, I'm not trying to like, come back in my son's life just to have to be gone again. So once I got basically where the court, you know, lifted the protective order, and we did have temporary papers in place, you know, my visitation initially was real like limited, like it was supervised by his dad for a couple hours, like once a month. And so it was like this whole process of slowly getting back to the visitation. And by this time, you hadn't seen him in two years, right? Roughly. It was about two and a half. Yeah. Wow. How was it like seeing him for the first time? So it was one of those that it was like, I remember it was like my mom videoed the whole thing. I still have pictures on my dresser from that day. It was at one of his baseball games that we went to. And I remember like he, you could see him from like far away on these playgrounds that like all of a sudden you just see this little person just like running. Um, And he ran up to me and it was one of those that like in the moment, to be honest, it was kind of awkward for me Mm -hmm. because I'm like, I I don't know what to expect. I don't know. Is he going to be mad? Is he not? Like what? So I guess it wasn't necessarily awkward, but to an extent it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Even though like it was my, like my child, um, it was still like, I, it, it was uncharted territory of like how to navigate it. And it was one of those, like, it was great. So I was like super happy, so, you know, like all of that stuff. And I loved being able to see that he was like excited to see me. There was like all of that to it, but it was one of those that like, it kind of 
afterwards in a in a way like hit me like a train wreck that like when I was in my car like leaving that it was like this is it, it was almost like this is my reality now of like basically I've caused so much harm and like destruction that now I'm this limited as to how often I'm able to see my own child mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of when everything hit me of like the I guess like the intensity of it all and so I did make you know because I at the time he was eight and so and I didn't make the amends the first time I saw him again right yeah waited a couple months and I did and at that time I've did you feel like strangers kind of a little bit that's how I'm that's I can relate to so much what you're saying because that's how I feel like it was with Cadence and I in the beginning like it was kind of like we had to rebuild everything yeah because it had been so long and two like for the first few years of his life I was like the primary guardian and then Mm -hmm. like we went to 50 50 after you know like we because mine and his dad's uh custody battle was very vindictive it was very rough so we had eventually agreed on uh 50 50 custody because through that then like okay so he's five years old and like then all of a sudden I'm just gone and it was one of those that like nobody his dad my parents nobody really knew what to tell him especially too because he's five years old right um he doesn't at this time like definitely doesn't understand anything about alcoholism drug addiction like you know none of it so it was one of those two so like seeing him again I was like I don't really know like what he knows like is and and so it was a lot of like rebuilding because like I was like too I was like how much does he remember about me because he was five and it had been years but also too throughout that time like he would ask questions about you know where I was and so too with the protective order my parents were unsure of how much to tell him and so like for a while they told him which this probably wasn't the best thing to do but they just told him I was missing um which wasn't not true but I think also too they didn't quite think about the amount of weight that that was going to put on him that his that his mom was just missing um yeah so it was like that for a while and finally like whenever you know that's probably why he was so happy to see you too well so whenever I did I mean of course you're his mom but I have I'm just imagining like he's been told that his mom's missing and now she's found well and so they told him that they knew where I was basically when I checked into treatment um like my mom like just couldn't take it anymore and finally just told him like look like we found your mom I think they just basically told him along the lines of like that I was sick and so Mm -hmm. I was basically in a in a place and I was getting well and my mom said at that time she hadn't even really thought about it either but she said by telling him that she said it looked like the weight of the world had been lifted off his shoulders to know that like you know I had been found and so too so like seeing him again you know and to like making those like first round of amends it's like there's so much that he doesn't know but also too so much that he's not old enough to understand yet Mm -hmm. so basically at that time I made like a eight-year-old's version of amends of like not being the mom he needed me to be like not being around like all of that kind of stuff and it's one of those that's like it's, it was a real informal because mm-hmm. you know it's like asking a, I can't really ask an eight-year-old like I mean obviously all he's going to tell me of what I can do to make it right is not do it again you mm-hmm. know and so kind of as time's gone on you know and he's seen me work in treatment me open a sober living like me do all these things like he's been to been around my friends who are in the recovery community he's been to some functions with me so like he's definitely gotten some knowledge around recovery and you know how all of it works in treatment you know to Mm -hmm. to some extent and so but kind of what I've what I've learned is over the years it's like I've kind of had to modify because it's like still over the years now that he's getting older and can understand more like criminal charges and going to you know like that kind of stuff that it's like too not going to cause more harm to tell him because like when you're eight you don't really need to know that like your mom's a felon right you know like that's gonna make it any better um so as he's gotten older we've we've talked more about that and explained it to him and especially here here recently like we had a conversation not too long ago where because two kind of what's been and, and, and some of it is things that like I was pretty sure were going to happen but it's more just like having to hear it mm-hmm. um through those years that I was gone like he got in a lot of trouble in school he was angry a lot of the time I didn't know why uh and so like trying to explain to him of like you know like you were scared you were confused you were also angry because nobody was telling you anything yeah. Um, and to hear stuff like that, you know, and hear him tell me like, yeah, he was like when my dad used to smoke and he would go outside and sit in his chair outside at night. He said, I would always sneak out of my room and go watch him out the window because I was scared he was going to leave too. Oh my God. So, you know, it's like things like that, that it's like, I know that like, you know, it's like, cause like, you know, that there's no doubt that by being gone for that long, that like, it's going to do some emotional damage, but yeah. still to like be told it, you know, it was like, I felt someone had hit me in the gut real hard. And, but you know, I think that, sorry, I'm like getting emotional and crying. I think that's like so important for us as moms to, 
to hear though, um, because one of the things that I hold on to is my daughter being like five years old and she was around the same age when I made an amends to her. And when she, when they would try to track me down and she would be like, mommy, every single night, I wish upon a shooting star that when I wake up that you'll be here and then you're never here. And it's like, I never want to forget that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it, and too, and it's seeing, you know, like that there is like certain things in him that I can't help, but like know that my actions have caused, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like tr- now trying to do, it's like the biggest thing I can do now is like, honestly the biggest thing I've seen is just like open communication Mm -hmm. um like allowing him the space to ask questions and like doing my best to try to explain it but like too it's one of those that like I know he carried with him for those couple years because his kids like they don't they can't understand what emotions they're feeling they don't know what questions to ask you know but like him carrying with him probably some aspect of blame right that either like I you know he wasn't good enough for me to stick around for you know it's like those types of things that like kids don't understand honestly that's that him being alive is one of the biggest motivators for me to get sober are you or someone you know struggling with the inability to stop drinking at the Magdalene House we believe that alcoholic women deserve a place to recover with dignity In our two-week residential program, clients will be introduced to what alcoholism is and what alcoholism isn't, as well as be presented with a solution, all in a loving and supportive environment. All of our programs are at absolutely no cost, and because we accept no government money, we can accept women all over the world and stick to our own curriculum. If you want to stop drinking and cannot, call 214-324-9261 for a phone screen. Well, it's just my, I have, I told you, I have such a heart for moms and their kids because like, that's my situation. That's my story. And it like, I just, the kids who think that like, why am I not enough for my mom or my dad to get sober or stay sober? And then the moms who are thinking like, what the hell is wrong with me that like, I can't get sober for my kids, Mm -hmm. you know, how's your relationship with him today? Definitely a lot different than it used to be. Um, I also, too, feel like now that there's been that open communication, now that there's been that, like, that bond's been rebuilt, it's still a work in progress, but definitely he feels, like, safe, like, talking to me about stuff. That's good. You know, and it's it's one of those that, you know, the hope is, is because right now I've got, you know, their standard visitation. Uh, You know, the hope is... How often do you get to see him? It's basically every other weekend, a month during the summer... I have them for spring break this year, alternating holidays, that kind of deal. So it's just your normal, like basically like, you know, when parents get divorced, the visitation that the dad mm-hmm. normally has, it's yeah. basically what I have. So there's the goal one day for that to you know, increase. And also too, it's been an interesting experience trying to navigate things with his dad. Right. Well, um, that's what I wanted to ask you about too. How has that been? Uh, <laughs> that has been, so I'll tell you, it, it's been different from the beginning than how I expected it to be based off our experience okay um so going into this because to you know when I was about six months sober and I first reached out to his dad just to basically tell him you know like own up to some things or whatever you know he at the time had told me that it would be a long time before basically his dad likes to think that he's the judge um, but he like told me there would be a long time before I would ever be able to, you know, see Lannon again. And he tried to tell me that Lannon had basically forgotten about me, and, you know, stuff like that. So, but then a little bit later, once, you know, basically, because too, it's one of those that it's like, even at six months sober, you know, it, it's not uncommon to see people come through custody courts that have put together three, four, five, six months, um, but it not actually be like sustainable long term. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to also to make it to where I had been you know, sober for a longer period of time, figured things out. So once that time did come, his dad was actually much more compliant and willing than I thought he was going to be to work with me. Mm -hmm. Um, We ended up not even having to go in front of the judge for, because also too, though, I went into it knowing that I didn't have a leg to stand on. Right. You know, it was like, you know, and to my family was like, well, you've done all of this, you've done that. Like you've, you know, gone to treatment. Now you're doing all this great stuff. And I'm like, sure. But like at the end of the day, all I've really done is what I should have been doing the whole time. You know, like it's like it's like to us and to my family. Yes, I've accomplished like great things, but like to a judge in a court, like now I'm just doing 
what I should, you know, what I should have been doing years ago. So like that doesn't really carry as much like weight and that like they thought it should. But so he, you know, and throughout this, it's more like we're still in the process of like now, like learning how to co-parent and like what that looks like. Because like the thing is, is for years, like he didn't have to worry about reporting anything to anybody about Mm. like. Is he remarried? No. Mm. About like school or like what's going on with him if this that and another so like it's also a learning thing for him to like now fill someone else in also too like I said like our first few years in our custody battle it was very vindictive it was very were you sober during this time no okay no no it's <laughs> not but it was just like he was angry at me I was angry at him and we were basically using Landon as like leverage against each other mm-hmm. a lot of it was more about getting back at each other and not so much like the welfare of him and like we both wanted full custody and the other one to have none just because we were angry at each other mm-hmm. so things are definitely much different than that now we're actually in a position to where like we can communicate like adults you know and to some of it is I think that maybe over those years of me being gone like based off what he told me the first time I talked to him was I think he might have realized that like as long as I'm stable and healthy and happy and whatever that I actually might be much more beneficial being in Landon's life than he had you know kind of thought at a time and that you know a kid needs his mom I think more than he thought that mm-hmm. he did so things are, you know, it's one of those that it's like, we're not, you know, super great friends and super, you know, but like at games, like we're civil, like, especially too with me, with his family, we're fine again, which that also used to be quite a battle. So it's like, you know, we're not all hunky dory, but like things are, things are fine. Oh, so did you make amends to him? Yes. How was that? Mm, it was one of those that like, there wasn't really the willingness to hear it. Oh, he didn't want to hear it from you? Mm, not really. Yeah. Because, too, they're not the most open-minded. So I think it's, like, too, they don't, then and them and themselves don't have a lot of understanding around, like, why I'm trying to make these and this, that, and other. It's more just, like, don't do it again Mm kind of thing. So it's, he's he's not a real, like, talk in here. You know, like, that's just not his his speed, so wasn't really about it. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So flip side, criminal charges. Mm Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you had to do to, like, make amends, like, to the court system or anything like that? Or how did, like, did you end up having to face jail time? Like, what ended up happening with all of your criminal stuff? And has that gotten in the way of you finding a place to live or getting a job? I mean, I guess not. You're working in treatment. I mean. Oh, in the treatment industry, they basically totally expect fine. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that first charge that I caught um, whenever I was on probation for it was back whenever I was not sober. So, I ended up, for that one, getting arrested again while I was on probation for that one for my two misdemeanor charges. So, that probation got revoked and reinstated, and it was a whole thing, which I don't know how I didn't uh, end up with jail time on that one because it was like I was diluting all my UAs and I was like barely I was like falsifying my community service law like it was a mess um I finished that probation though um so the two charges that I caught before ending up in treatment the one that was in April of 2017 I went to court for like in Denton County so basically what their original thing was is they were wanting I think like five years probation plus I think like at least like a couple months in jail, some stuff like that. Well, so when I went up there, I took probably, I think like four letters of recommendation from the treatment center I was working for at the time. You know, my lawyer like presented like what all I've done as far as like treatment and sober living and all of that after like since being arrested. So they ended up dropping it to two years probation and they made it deferred, even though that was not my first go around. So it might've been three years, I'm not sure, but I successfully completed it and actually had friend of mine who used to be a judge helped me get off probation about a year early wow so um, it's not on your record anymore uh so I still need to file the non-disclosure act on it oh, okay. to where it's like the judges like courts can see it but other people can't and then the other charge the one that actually landed me in treatment it actually ended up basically getting rejected by the courts so at the time they just wanted more to do with a certain individual that I was with so they basically like didn't have enough evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt in order to charge me because that charge was ultimately identity theft it's fraudulent use of identifying information over 50 items wow yeah so that one got rejected but it's like they can if they ever get more evidence they can file an under so it's like it's still there but they just haven't done anything with it so but the charge that hurts me yeah so I am not a person that can have my name on a lease well, you have a place to live, right? Where I do. do you live? Uh, so I live at my dad's house. Oh, okay. So you're, the relationship with your parents is, is good, right? Yeah. So, um, and I mean, things have always been 
like I've never really had issues with my dad my mom was the one that there was always the issues with my dad always said my mom and I are exactly like where it hurts and completely different where it hurts mm-hmm. so more the relationship rebuilding was on you know it's basically once I did that inventory and realized that not everything was my mom's fault like I always like to say it was for a long time that was able to get better and so things have always been pretty good with my dad and and a lot to living with him is like there's also two like I can't get my name on a lease but also two like I'm in school, just open a new business. Like I got a lot of moving pieces right now. So ultimately it's just a little bit easier for me to not have to worry about all of that other stuff on top of it. And my mom and I founded a business together. So we're definitely on much different terms than we used to be. That's awesome. And it's a recovery business. Mm -hmm. And so she, I guess now has an investment in recovery. She does. My mom has found her like, I guess you could say like her niche in like being a parent or a loved one of someone who has a substance use disorder. Wow. So so she helps family members? So she's, she does. She's actually like talked to like some of our residents' parents. But her thing more is like, you know, what we've talked about, what she's trying to do is so like, especially too with having the business is like, we'll go to like nonprofit events and stuff like that and kind of just like, our bigger deal is like, we want people to start having a conversation about this stuff, especially too, like she lives in McKinney and there's not like, you got a lot of like, honestly, there's a lot of like soccer moms in whatever in that area. And it's just substance abuse is just not something that's really talked about. I mean, I was like that PTA mom, you know, drinking wine and popping pills. Mm -hmm. And that's like somewhat acceptable. Right. But I mean, that's like, I don't know it's but I was doing it you know I was like the PTA mom the craft mom but I was that mom you know who was popping pills and drinking but just ultimately because I wanted to be a better mom which is kind of I mean twisted if you think about it because I was doing it wanting to be a better mom but it really it's like ironic yeah 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 and so like her thing is so she's she's like she's a loan officer at a bank but like throughout telling her telling people about this business that we've started and that like openly telling people because like I've got no shame around the fact that like I'm a recovered alcoholic drug addict you know Mm -hmm. it's like I'm like let's talk about it you know like I I have no problem telling people any aspect of my story well this is called recover out loud so well works out then yeah perfect (laughs) but so her thing is is to just like openly talking to people about it and she's like learned that almost anybody that she brings it up in a conversation with about like sober living or that her daughter is this you know like whatever it is that almost everybody is like oh yeah I have a brother sister daughter you know whoever that has struggled with it or is struggling with it or you know so it's like along the way she's finding out like how common it is but she says that she can tell when talking to people that it is not something that they would have ever just like brought up if she hadn't it's like she's like created this like space for them to feel like like there's someone else that they can tell and not have to worry about feeling the the shame or embarrassment or whatever that other people might you know give because the stigma around it did she do Al-Anon or anything or so no not exactly she has like when I remember when I was in treatment and I was like telling them about the big book like it was my bible you know I was yeah. like yeah on this page is because I was so excited about it mm-hmm. um but so like she has bought like a big book she's read it she's like looked into like all the stuff and like the people and listened and the read all these different books and does she ever want to work the steps you think I think she would yeah yeah I think and also too I think everybody in the world could benefit from working the steps absolutely <laughs> whether I they mean... have a substance problem or not because we have a family support group here that's free and they use the big book. Yeah. Um, so, and it's like open up to anybody, anybody who has a loved one of, of alcoholics or drug addicts. Like they don't have to go through the, the mags on house, you know? Okay. And so they use, I don't know, they use the big book and stuff. And so you're just, I don't know, you just reminded me of, of what our family support group does here. Yeah. She's one of those that she's all about trying to learn and understand. And that's the thing is like, I'm super grateful for is that, you know, cause this disease isn't something that really you can fully understand without experiencing it. Right. But I was fortunate enough to have a family that was like willing to try to. I know. And that's awesome. Yeah. And that's really all that I could like ask for them into. Like I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, families too are horrified early on when they have a loved one in and it's in recovery or whatever because they don't know they don't know what to expect because ultimately it's all on us whether this sticks or not mm-hmm. but I was just super fortunate like my whole family was just willing to try to understand or at least be like willing to admit when there's things that I say that like I need to do as far as the program like the meetings and sponsors and you know all that stuff it's like even if they don't understand they're willing to accept that they know that they don't understand if that makes any sense yeah and how lucky are you to have parents like that I know 
That's that's amazing. Well, we are at the top of the hour. I feel like a nice title for this is long period of reconstruction ahead, but maybe different. But I feel like that's very fitting. I mean, my like basically my whole because like too like you know I started going back to school, but I didn't start going back to school till I was probably like three years sober. You mm-hmm. know, it was like a lot of these things that took me a while to start. Well, I think like, that's smart though. Well, I mean, yeah, but it's yeah. like, it's like ultimately, and that's not, that was just because it was like, there was more so much focus around like trying to reconstruct things that I wasn't trying to like jump the gun. Cause I know some people, as soon as they get sober, they're like, I need to go back to school. I need to do this. I need to mm-hmm. do that. And so it was like, it just basically took me a while to kind of basically start adulting again, mm-hmm. you know, because it was like, there was a lot of little stepping stones to be in a position that I could do that and it be sustainable and I achieve it. So what's life like today? Life today is very busy, but it's one of those that it's like, I try to remember to always like, because of the fact that it gets busy and it gets hectic, like I'm in school, I have a job, I own a business, I have a kid, you know, like there's a lot of things that, and plus like my own personal life and 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 recovery. recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So like balancing all of that, like sometimes like I, I basically always try to remember to take a second and like step back and like look at where I am now versus where I used to be and two, just really being grateful for like the connections that I've made like the people in my life that like I didn't I didn't know that those types of like friendships could exist Mm -hmm. um like those dynamics and stuff like that so like life is great you know just generally any of my complaints about life is just about you know because I'm functioning you know it's just like the normal stresses that come with that kind of stuff but problems get upgraded right yeah yeah better problems today yeah they're definitely it's like you know I wouldn't trade any of my problems now for you know any of my best days back then how are you internally because I know before you said you had a lot of like self-harm suicidal all that stuff yeah so I definitely don't have any of that anymore and I did have um you know my first couple years in recovery I was on mental health medication so you know literally throughout my life I think I've been on every and like SSRI antidepressant anti-anxiety all of those that they make bipolar you know whatever I was on a few of those like my first couple years of sobriety and about the last year or so, I've, you know, and that's where they say the whole like clean versus clear, like giving your brain time to like regulate again. But I have, I've been in a position to where I haven't needed to be on any mental health meds for about a year. Wow. So, I feel like the last person I interviewed, that was their same. Ex- oh, you know, Brittany, it was her. Okay. Yeah. I just interviewed her like yesterday or the day before. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like now I'm in a position that like, you know, because one thing that this program gives you if you work it, whether you want it or not, is a lot of self-awareness. Yes. Um. So like I'm more in a position to where I'm awake and aware if like there's things going on that like I need to do some inventory, like I'm not meditating. It's like it gives me more awareness around which part of this program is that like maybe I'm missing that's causing me to feel that way. But like I know the answer of what to do to fix mm-hmm. it. You know, it's like I haven't had any of that. Like because I, you know, I, I know that there's a solution now and back then I didn't think there was. Right. So. So how do you keep your recovery a priority with all of the busyness of life? So the honest answer is trial and error. <laughs> okay. Like the, the honest answer is, you know, there's been times where like, especially too, when the business was first opening and I had a new job and I was in school that like it did definitely go on the back burner. Well, um, I feel like I've always seen you at your home group every time I went. So you had that. Yeah, I had that, but it was more just like, basically it, it's not that I stopped, like, you know, I was still doing, you know, well, I mean, if you ask my sponsor, she's going to tell you I stopped doing nightlies for a little bit. So I'll just go ahead and admit that. You know, it's like some of those little things I started making excuses for that I was like too tired or too busy. Because also too is for a while I was distracted mm-hmm. by life's things. And then and then slowly over a couple of weeks time, like I was going to my home group, but I wasn't utilizing my sponsor. I wasn't utilizing like you know, daily discipline. So like I fell off with my meditation and just like some of those smaller things that are like help with my, you know, daily spiritual connection. And I started to feel it. You know, I just started to feel that I was just like frustrated and overwhelmed and irritable and, you know, all of those things. And I saw it. And fortunately, like I said, like that self-awareness is I saw it and I was like, this isn't right. Mm-hmm. And so like talked to my sponsor and it was kind of one of those that like, you know, you don't call your sponsor for a while and then you call him and you're like, hey, <laughs> yeah, I know I haven't called it a while. It's like kind of like that. Like you're like, hey, like I know that I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm seeing I need to fix it. Who's Um, your sponsor now? Alyssa. So she's been my sponsor since I moved back here in 2019. So yeah, and she always likes to, you know, remind me that sometimes any, well, anytime that I forget the, basically the deal that I made with God Mm -hmm. uh, coming into this is, you know, for him to basically take away that mental obsession and all of that turmoil and like basically what I agreed to was, 
be of service to other people and, you know, show up differently. So she likes to remind me when I forget that. That's um, good job, Alyssa. Yeah. So, ba- so basically the answer to your question is, is like I've basically allowed myself to let that fall off and I got miserable. Um, so I basically have experienced what it's like to not put it as a priority. So now it's just made me even more motivated to remember to do that because mm-hmm. those little things matter a lot more than sometimes we like to remember that they do. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite part in the big book? And then I'm going to ask you your final question or favorite line. And will you read it to us? Dang. Well, because I have multiple. I know. That's them. the, I mean, that's usually, it's not because people don't know, but there's like, how do I pick just one? Yeah. That's why I'm like, wait a second. So, I mean, obviously there's the part that I read in the doctor's opinion, because that's the first part in this book that I read that like I immediately identified with, mm-hmm. um, is that whole cycle. I love the, the talking about the bedevilments on, on 52. Read them. Well, that wasn't the choice I was going to pick though. Oh, but who cares? We can read more than one thing. Okay. Wait. You can it? never have enough big book in your life. So, yeah. So, cause you're like talking about the, the bedevilments because you know, you can experience them when you're not sober and when you are, you know, it's just basically like. I don't know it's just a good good thing to to remember but so page 52 is so we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our own human problems the same readiness to change our point of view we were having trouble with personal relationships we couldn't control our emotional natures we were a prey to misery and depression we couldn't make a living we had a feeling of uselessness we were full of fear we were unhappy we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. So um, just in case anybody's listening who doesn't know what the bedevilments are, now you do. Yeah. And my other... Because we just assume that everybody knows what we're talking about because we have this language that we speak. Yeah. But not everybody does. My, my mom always <laughs> tells me because like she'll, especially too when I was like early on in like working in inpatient treatment, doing accountability and all this stuff. So she, I don't like, it would just like come out and talking to her. And so mm-hmm. now she'll say it back to me, but like, I hate it. Cause one thing I used to always be is like, yeah, they just they, like something about how we show up and like, it's using the term. Cause like we use it a lot of like how they're showing up, how I'm showing up. It's mm-hmm. like using that terminology showing up is like real normal in like 12 step communities. But I guess outside of it, no, that's not, not the same. Right. So she likes to throw the lingo back at me because she's like, what? That's so awesome though. But so the part of the book I was gonna pick just because this paragraph, it's one of my favorites because of like me personally, but also too, anytime I'm like working with a woman, anytime like really like explaining to them like what that selfishness looks like. Um, this is always like one of my favorite parts to like relate to. Is so selfishness, self, page 62, selfishness, self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point in the past we had made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. And then it goes on to say, so our troubles we think are basically our own making. Love it. Yeah. We talk about that a lot here too. Yeah, it's just because, like, I always, like, explain to them that it's, like, when this book talks about selfishness, it's not necessarily, like, society's normal term mm-hmm. of selfishness. Right. It's not saying that, like, you care about yourself more than other people or, you know, like, that type of thing. It's, like, explaining, like, what that really looks like. Yeah. So I will say, based off my own experience and, like, the experience I've seen of many other people, um, and so if anyone's ever offered a, a option to, like... So, cause like from my story, when I was talking about, like I was given the option to do sober living and I was like, absolutely not. Like when I leave here, I'm going to go back home. I don't need anybody else's help. What I tell people all the time, like if you're ever offered the option for somewhere like Magdalene house or like, you know, something like that, that it's like any type of like aftercare or something like that, like take it. Because I think if I hadn't been, or at least be open and willing to it. Cause right. I think if I hadn't been and I had been like, no, I'm going back home. I think my experience would have looked a lot different. Oh, for sure. Yes. And I think it's like that position of if I'm open to it, like that showing that I have willingness and humility, mm-hmm. which is like the things that you need for a spiritual experience. Absolutely. You know, well, this has been great. How's your experience been? Was it as bad as you thought it was going to be? In the beginning, I was like, eh. uh, like I was like, I can't, I don't know what words to use. It was like all of a sudden I forgot what my experience was. Um, <laughs> you did great though. But after, after doing this for a little while, now I feel like this is like normal also to hearing myself talk is weird right yeah yeah you get used to that too yeah so after about halfway through i started feeling like okay this is this is comfortable this is okay yeah Yeah. all right so my final question is what would be the one thing that you would want to say to the suffering alcoholic i have to pick just one yep maybe two like if they were only going to hear this thing 
It was going to be this thing that they were going to hear. That's so much pressure. I know, right? That's so much pressure. Yes. When I was interviewed, I already knew that that was the final question, so I had my answer. I'm trying to think of like how to say it in a condensed version. Who cares? Don't worry about it being condensed. So first off, like obviously the first thing that comes to mind is like, you know, like there is a way out. Yeah. Like you're not alone. And if you go into it with an open mind, open mind and willingness to take direction, it's not that hard. You know, it's like the program's not, it's not this big, scary thing that a lot of people think it is like having to do the, you know, that, that like having to like do that and make the amends and all of this, like it sounds scary, but like the promises that come with it all. So worth it. Surpass the amount of like, you know, uncomfortability that there is with it. Mm-hmm. It's just like, give it a shot, but also too, if you do and you don't have that honesty, open-mindedness and willingness, like it's not going to work. Yeah. Those are, like it says, they're indispensable. Right. Absolutely. That's what my sponsor likes to say too. Mm-hmm. I mean, she got it from the big book. She didn't think of it herself, but you know. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, if you have loved what you heard, please leave us a review. If you even liked what you heard, please leave us a review. If you have not liked it, I hope you're not listening anymore. Um, anyways, what your review does, like I said, is it helps make this reach more alcoholic women, which is ultimately what we are trying to do. People need to know that there is hope. They need to know there is a solution. And they need to know that places like the Magdalene House exist because if you do not have money, even if you do have money, you can recover. All of our programs here are at absolutely no cost. And we have had women who have come through these programs who have heard about the Magdalene House through the podcast. And so it's so important that this gets out. Lizzie, this has been fantastic. I'm so glad I got to know you a little bit more. This is fun. I yeah. like talking with the microphone. I know, right? It's so fun. I told you it was fun. I feel, I feel real fancy. Right yes, now. yes. It's so fun. All right, y'all, you have a wonderful day, and I will see you guys next time. Bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org.